0: I'm Jonathan Capehart and this is Cape Up. The Republican Party is still enthralled to Donald Trump, a man who turned generations of the party's stances on its head in one presidential term. For Stuart Stevens, a rock-ribbed Republican who has helped to elect Republicans at all levels of government, including President of the United States, this led to some soul-searching. The result is his book, It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. This conversation with Stevens is from last September, but everything we talked about, especially the ugly role of race in the Republican Party, is still relevant today. You can hear it all right now. Stuart Stevens, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Great to be here, Jonathan. I'm a, I'm a longtime fan, first time caller.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. You know, you, you sent me a, a DM on Twitter asking um, for me to to read your latest book and where could, he, where could you send it? And I thought, if Stuart Stevens is sending me a message about a book he's written, I probably need to read it. Um, The name of the book is It Was All A Lie, and I am so glad I read it because in some ways it it was cathartic for me to read because, you know, it's no secret, I'm a Democrat, a little left of center, and always had these suspicions about the Republican Party, but you, as a creature of the Republican Party, someone who helped set up the Republican Party, to hear you just sort of, I don't know, what's the right, what's the right word to describe what you do in this book before we dive right in?
1: Look, I I, um, started uh, on the quest that ended with this book, asking myself, how is it that Trump could happen? And, you know, kind of that old thing that your high school English tells you, if you can't write it, you don't really understand it. Um. So for me, it really began as a very personal quest. Um, You know, in 2016, a lot of people were wrong about Donald Trump, but it's hard to find anybody who was more wrong than me. I didn't think he'd win the primary. I didn't think he'd win the general. And I realized in retrospect, a lot of it is because I didn't want to believe it. Um, And then I went through this period after he was elected. A lot of my friends did. Like Donald Trump isn't really the Republican Party. But I don't really see how you sustain that. Um, if, if part of the realities of what Trump has brought to us is a death of truth, I, I think being truthful is all the more important. And you know, one of the things that really drew me to the Republican Party was the concept of personal responsibility, which now we've become the ultimate victims party. So for me, I, I, I had this kind of nutty idea that if I believed in personal responsibility, it should begin with personal responsibility. And I didn't want to write, you know, there's a sort of trope of books in D.C. of if only they'd listen to me. Hmm. Uh, You know, I couldn't write that because they did listen to me. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I couldn't sort of like blame them. Um, So that's that's what led me to write the book. Um, I think it's a combination of a mea culpa and a jacuzzi.
0: That is the word I was looking for and I couldn't find it. It was it was mea culpa on on page 36 um, at the end of I think it's the first chapter um, is a paragraph that I think encapsulates what you were just saying, but also the premise of the book. You write, how do you abandon deeply held beliefs about character, personal responsibility, foreign policy and the national debt in a matter of months? You don't. The obvious answer is those beliefs weren't deeply held. In the end, the Republican Party rallied behind Donald Trump because if that was the deal needed to regain power, what was the problem? Because it had always been about power. The rest, the principles, the values, it was all a lie. That is, when I read that, I underlined it, practically ripping up the paper and underlining underlining it, because that's what I've been seeing and has taken my breath away about the Republican Party in the age of Trump. All of these things I grew up hearing and learning from Republicans have
1: been completely junked. Yeah, um, you were right. We were wrong. Um, it. it, it I I don't think that we've really seen a collapse of a political party uh, the way the Republican Party's collapsed in modern American history and probably not in American history. Um, To me, the Republican Party doesn't exist as a political party now. It exists as a cartel. Why does it exist? It exists to beat Democrats. That's not a political theory. That's just a marketing principle. It's like asking OPEC, what's the higher good of OPEC? Well, no, they sell oil. What a narco cartel. You don't go to a narco cartel and say, what are you guys really trying to, you know, do? We're trying to sell dope, man. And, like, you know, what's the Republican Party doing? It's trying to beat Democrats. And to, to no power, to no purpose, I think, other than power.
0: I find it interesting that you you use the word cartel and you write about that in the book. The other the the other C word people are using about the Republican Party under President Trump is cult. Is there clearly there's a difference between the two. Is cult um much more apt than cartel or can both be true at the same time?
1: Well, if you look at cartels, they're usually run by strong men. Um someone who uh is at the head that demands total loyalty. Um, and, and I think that th- that's what it is. I, I I find the cult aspect of it. I mean, it's true. There is sort of a cult of Trump, but I think it's also um, uh, a bit uh, inadequate in that it seems to somehow take away the responsibility of each individual. It's as if they, f- they fell into some sort of power force um, that, uh, they couldn't have resisted, um, whereas I, I think the essence of Trump is that he says to us that that part within us that is all our worst self is our best self and that is the part we should embrace and and that is so comfortable to, to, to be told that you're not supposed to aspire to be a better person. Um, that that side of you that's angry, that feels embittered, and we all have that various ways, um, that you feel you were cheated here, not given a fair chance there. That's your best self. That's really the part of you you should embrace. Um, and it, it ties into being a victim. It ties into how you see yourself in the world. Um, and, and one of the most remarkable things to me about Trump is I mean, the, the premise in Reagan era, say what you will about Reagan, but it was to be born an American was to win life's lottery. You were the luckiest person in the world. To be born an American under Trump is you're a victim. You're a chump. There are these powerful forces out there like Canada (laughs) (laughs) that are taking advantage of us. And, you know, we're going to go out and settle the score with those Canucks. Um, It's just an extraordinarily different view of of how you see yourself as a citizen.
0: Well, I mean, a, a, as you write in your book, Trump first emerged and positioned himself as a warrior for the oppressed white people of America. So many Republicans embraced Trump's view that they were victims, as was he, because they had actually believed this all along. Theirs was a white oh, theirs was a white birthright, and the rise of non-whites was an unjust usurping of their rights.
1: Listen, I finished this book about a year ago, and it's a pretty bleak view of the Republican Party. I'd have to say today I was overly optimistic because what, is, what has played out since has, has been all of these tendencies accelerated. You have Donald Trump who's basically running for president of the United States in 2020 trying to scare people about black people moving in the suburbs. You have Donald Trump who manages to end up on the wrong side of a cultural war with NASCAR. Um, and uh, it's just, uh, you know, invites a couple to come and speak to the Republican National Convention that their only achievement in life that merited speaking to the Republican National Convention was waving guns at Blacks. That's why they spoke, that couple from St. Louis. Mm-hmm. They threatened peaceful Black, mostly Black demonstrators with guns. So therefore, we need to honor this. Um, it's, it's toxic and it's corrupt and... What is most troubling to me is not that Trump is Trump, because Trump is Trump, is that the Republican Party has allowed this to happen. And that's where the responsibility is. It's on each of these individuals. Um, And it's a massive failure, civic failure of a party. Um, I think unlike any we've seen in our history.
0: You know, later on in the book, you don't you don't exactly name names. Um, but you do go after former former clients for whom you worked for them because you believed in all of these things and you thought they believed in all of these things. and yet here they are towing the line with these folks um, with with the president. Is it just just for sheer power's sake that they don't rise up, stand up, and say just at a minimum say, no, Mr. President? The only person who seems to be doing that is, is Senator Romney. Yes. And only um, on occasion.
1: You know, I'd have to preface it by saying, even, you know, having thought about it a lot, written this book, I still don't understand it. Because to me, um, cur- I, courage isn't standing up to Donald Trump. You know, courage is getting out of the boat when the guy in front of you got shot. And that's the legacy they inherited. They inherited the legacy of the greatest generation. You know, people like my dad, who's like hundreds of thousands of others. I mean, spent three years fighting in the South Pacific, 28 iron landings, came back. That's their legacy. And they won't even stand up to Donald Trump. Um, one of the things that I, I sort of came to the conclusion of, maybe we, sh- we shouldn't be surprised by cowardice. Maybe we should assume cowardice is as a norm and we should be surprised by courage. Um, and uh, what what... I mean, I know a lot of these people. They're good people. I mean, if you live next door to them, they'd be great neighbors. They'd stop and help you on the road in a heartbeat. Um, I, don't, I don't understand it on multiple levels, Jonathan. I, I mean, one thing, I mean, say about most politicians, as you well know, they have pretty big egos, which I, that's fine with me. So great athletes, musicians, certainly writers. You know, we haven't shot anybody all day for that. Um, but why don't they see how they're going to be looked at? And why don't they see that to stand up to Donald Trump? they are going to be honored for this much more so than say they lose a primary. Right. So so what? As being a Senator, that great of a job, most people I know who are senators kind of half hated. Um, it's sort of a sucky job. Uh, I, I, don't understand it. Um, and I'm not talking about being looked at in history in 20 years. I'm talking about a year from now.
0: You know, one of the, one of the people who, um, and I don't know if this person is is a client uh, of yours, but you know, a person who you know sort of broken my heart in all of this on the Republican side of the aisle is Senator Susan Collins of Maine, who at the you know the ending of Don't Ask, Don't Tell during all those negotiations, I was on the phone with her, you know, finding out what was going on, and um, I'm not revealing her as a source because I've written columns about this. But she always stood for process and norms and dignity and, uh, you know, respecting authority and all of that. And I am just gobsmacked by just how she's seemingly abandoned all that.
1: You know, the other night she wouldn't say who she was going to vote for for president in a debate. I I just don't get it. I mean, I really don't. I mean, just in a fundamental sense. I, I, I don't. It's like watching people torture a cat. I don't get it. Like what What inside you makes you want to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing, uh, you know, uh, I fell down a rabbit hole reading personal accounts of the 30s in Germany. Mm. And, you know, everybody says we can't talk about World War II. I think we have to talk about it. Not that the United States is going to end up like Germany. We have stronger institutions. We're not going to end up in a world war. Um, But you see good people abetting evil because they thought that it was necessary on some level for a greater good. And one of the most astonishing books that I read in this, and what I like most about writing this book, was this excuse to read a lot of other books. Um, And the Republican Party is not an obscure subject. There's a lot of great books on it but was uh, the memoirs of Franz von Papen, who was the Prussian aristocrat who did more to usher uh, Adolf Hitler into power really than any other individual. And even in 1953, when he was writing his memoirs, he was still trying to justify it. You have to understand, we faced this threat from the Bolsheviks and that we were seen as aristocrats and we needed Adolf Hitler to get the masses behind us to oppose Bolshevism. And okay, like things got a little off track there you know, with World War II, but I mean, I, I one of the little fascinating, sad spectacles is if Trump loses, watching these people try to forget that they were for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think, yeah, and I think in the 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 social media age that we're in, uh, good
1: luck with that. Brand them all. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, look, most of us in life, certainly I do, you know, don't look for moral challenges. I generally try to avoid moral challenges or pain. But this Trump was a moral challenge you couldn't avoid. I mean, you you don't get to pick history. History picks you. And, uh, you know, if you ever asked yourself, like, what would you, what side of the Pettus Bridge you would have been on? This is that moment. Mm -hmm. And it's... Well, so The thing is, I mean, to cross the Pettis Bridge was to get, you know, risk your life. These people aren't risking their lives. They can stand up to Donald Trump. Are they going to get a tweet? <laughs> uh, you know, no one's coming at him with nightsticks. There's not dogs on the other end of that bridge. And they don't have the courage to stand up to that. I mean, I I say this, and it sounds like a joke, but I'm dead serious. If these Republicans were in power in 1776, does anybody really think we would be celebrating the Queen's birthday? I mean, you know exactly what they say. What are we going to do, fight the king? You out of your mind, the most powerful army in the world? We'll have to work this out. It's uh, extraordinary.
0: So uh, um, I I love your Edmund Pettus um, bridge analogy, which side would you be on? Because I think... And maybe when you were on on AM Joy, when I had you on to talk about the book, I brought this up. But I think this this election, um, it's not just President Trump versus former Vice President Joe Biden. I think it is American democracy versus white supremacy. Which way is America going to go? And quite frankly as much as I'm hopeful that Biden will win, white supremacy throughout our nation's history has shown incredible resilience. Try to talk me off that ledge, Stuart.
1: Now, listen, um, I think that the Republican Party has become really formally now, once they agreed there wasn't a platform, only a a pledge of allegiance to Donald Trump, uh, a white grievance party, and a party of of hate. You know, we've always had an element of hate in our politics. I mean, in the 30s, we had Father Coughlin. I mean, much of the America First movement was anti-Semitic uh, and hateful. But it's never been embraced by a major party before. And that's what's happened here. Um, and it's very, very troubling because if you look at the history of this, when this happens, it's very difficult to undo. And it's why I think the only positive future for the Republican Party is, is burning it to the ground now. Um, there's no reason to have a Republican Party now. It, 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 no one can articulate a coherent theory of government on the Republican side. You can't with any credibility. Say what you will about Elizabeth Warren. you know She has a theory of government and she can articulate it well and she'll argue with you. and You may hate it, you may love it, but you can have a conversation that is coherent. You can't do that with anyone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, on on you no know, conservatives. Um, we're to the left of Bernie Sanders on trade. <laughs> I mean, Sanders' honeymoon in, in Russia. but well, At least he didn't marry Putin. Um, I, I don't. You know, Ronald Reagan was incredibly pro-legal immigration. He announced in front of the Statue of Liberty, signed a bill that made everyone from the country for 1983 legal. His last speech was a beautiful ode to immigration. And now we're an anti-immigrant party. It's not just legal, we're an anti-immigrant party. And I don't, I don't think there's any future. It's why, you know, I have friends, Michael Steele, you know.
0: I, the of the Republican party? Yeah,
1: you know, he, his attitude, which I greatly respect is, look, I'm not gonna let Donald Trump drive me out of the party. I've been in this party 40 years, I'm more Republican than he is, I'm gonna fight. I really respect that, but it's not where I am. I don't think it's worth fighting for, personally. Mm. Um, And, you know, I'll I'll work for Democrats if they'll have me. Um, I I think what's gonna happen with the Republican Party is what happened nationally is what happened in California. I mean, it wasn't long ago, the Republican Party, the beating heart of the Republican Party was California, the Electoral Citadel. Now it's in third place. And even, you know, part of being in third place is that you're really not relevant to any major public policy decisions. I mean, what the Republican Party does in California just really is of no consequence now. And, I, you know, we say, why don't we have a third party? I really think we do have two, three parties. There's two inside the Democratic Party. And I think that the future of America is gonna be decided by that battle within the Democratic Party. So if you take, like, health care, are we really in 10 years, 20 years, going to be the only country that doesn't, Western democracy, that doesn't have, if we're still a Western democracy, uh, that doesn't have national health insurance? It's, it's unimaginable. Of course not. What that's going to be is going to be decided by the Democratic Party. The Republican Party is just going to stop. And it'll become increasingly irrelevant.
2: This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals?
0: The large part of your um, thesis in the book revolves around race. And in fact, the very first sentence of chapter one is, I played the race card in my very first race. Later on, you write, in my first race, I had stumbled onto a truth as basic and immutable as the fact that water freezes below 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Race was the key in which much of American politics, and certainly all of Southern politics, was played. How did you play the race card?
1: The, the first race I, I worked in, uh, I had been a pay's in high school for uh, Congressman Thad Cochran, who was the first Republican elected congressman from Mississippi in, I think, 100 years. And Thad was very much a sort of young, moderate, attorney-type um, who ran as sort of a different image than the old line Democratic segregationist senators, John Eastland um, and uh, John Stennis and Jim Eastland. Um, so uh, his chief of staff ran for Congress when Thad ran for the Senate. This is 1978. So um, there was a uh, African-American independent in that race. And there was a Democrat who was white and a Republican, my guy who was white. So when you looked at polling, it was clear that 90 plus percent of the African-Americans were either going to vote for the Democrat or vote for the African-American. But most of them didn't know that an African-American candidate was in the race. So I made this spot. It was really modeled after sort of like League of Women Voters spots, like voter ID spots, where I said, you know, three candidates are running for Congress and put their pictures up there. Uh, the African-American was named Evan Doss. Um, I said, Evan Doss has a chance to be the first African-American congressman elected from Mississippi since Reconstruction. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't any slander. It wasn't any, it was true. Probably if I was Evan Dawson, I saw that spot. I was like, great, I like that. You know, it was like an ad for me. But it was to manipulate race. Because I wanted people, African Americans, to vote for the independent so they wouldn't vote for the Democrat. It was straight up math. Um, Now in the end, my guy won with like 51%. So maybe he would have won without that. But I don't know. and it, you know, 19, 1956, Eisenhower gets almost 40% of the African-American vote. It drops to 7% with Goldwater. It never comes back. I mean, Trump got like 7.5%. So at this rate, at like the year 3080 or something, we'll be back up to some respectable number. <laughs>
0: yeah, um, no, that's optimistic, Stuart. You know,
1: it probably is, we see. So um, now this has been true all my career. But at least, and does this matter? I think it does. At least we used to admit it was a failure, and acknowledge it was a failure, and aspire to be better than that. Um, we failed. Wait, wait really, Stewart,
0: did the Republican Party aspire? Well, for the,
1: some of us. I, I, think, I think. Better among
0: African Americans. On
1: the on, on the Bush side of the party, we certainly did. Um, I mean Ken Melman went to the NAACP and apologized for the Southern strategy in, in 2005. Right. I mean we used to talk about a Big tent. Now you can make the case and there's some truth to this that that was pure politics because you know when you're only getting 7% of a certain market it makes it harder to win races. Um, but I, I do think Well, I think there were always these two strands of the republican party and I talk about that in the book There was the eisenhower strand to go back to the 50s and the mccarthy strand and that sort of played itself out um You know the origins of the southern strategy was written in a memo I talk about by pat buchanan and kevin phillips in the white house Where the idea was to split african-americans from the democratic party um So That dark side was always there. There's no no question about it. Um But I thought, and most of the people that I worked with, all of whom now are pretty much against Trump, um, we thought, naively as it turns out, that our side was inevitable, that we were on, as it were, on the right side of history. If nothing else, because the party had to change to continue to be a national party.
0: Right. In fact, there was the the whole autopsy that was written after the twenty the twenty twelve election that sort of laid out the roadmap for where the where the party needed to go in order to um remain a a relevant party. And as I like to say, but you know, autopsies are done on dead things.
1: <laughs> right? I always thought that was like a like I don't know, I think I would have stayed in the focus group a little longer before I called it that <laughs> um but you know, what's fascinating about that, Jonathan, it was presented not just as a political necessity, but a moral mandate. That really, if you were gonna earn the right to govern this big, changing country, you needed to represent it more. So then with Trump, we just like, almost like this audible sigh of relief, we throw it out the window, it's like, thank God, we don't have to pretend we care about this stuff anymore. <laughs> you know, we can just win with white people. Um, Which, according – which, as you said,
0: when it comes to the math, that's not a a winning strategy. You
1: know, sort of one thing you – go ahead. No, I say for all the books and millions of words written about how Donald Trump won, on one level he won for one reason. He ran in a year in which a Republican could win with 46.1%. Mitt Romney lost with 47.2. You have that same electorate uh, in 2016 and 2012. Romney wins easily. Um, I mean, Wisconsin's a perfect example. He lost Wisconsin, Romney did, by seven points, not a close race. Trump won by just under one. Romney got more votes. It was just the fact that forty to 50,000 fewer voters showed up in the greater Milwaukee area right. in 2016, uh, in part because of new voter ID laws that had an impact of suppressing the vote. Um, so... It sounded like, you know, if you see a movie like The Big Short about the subprime mortgage, once you analyze it, as a few key people did, it sort of took longer than they thought to crash. And it could be that with the Republican Party. It could hang on longer. Trump could win. Uh, But of Americans 15 years and under, the majority are non-white. And so odds are really good they're going to turn 18 and still be non-white. And that's a death sentence for the Republican Party as it is now. Mm -hmm. Flat out death sentence. And all the Stephen Millers in the world is not going to stop that. I mean, you're trying to boil the ocean. It's not going to work. So
0: you have so there's there's the demographic problem for the Republican Party. You also write um, it's how the Republican Party talks to black voters that yes. is also a problem. It isn't how Republicans are talking to black voters that results in 90% or more of those voters refusing to vote for Republicans. It's what the Republicans are doing once elected. And you, I, I mean, you write very, um, like you talk about the fact that, you know, hey, these are voters that we could actually, like, we could go for them. It's not like they don't hear what we're saying. They're watching what we're doing. And that's the yeah. issue.
1: This is a failure. I mean, when I was coming up, there was this sort of um, premise that a certain percentage of African Americans should support the Republican Party uh, because of cultural conservatism, uh, entrepreneurship, uh, patriotism. Um, But the problem is that Republicans, which is basically to say white Republicans, didn't know how to talk to African Americans. So there was this sort of industry of African-American Republican consultants who would come down all in good faith and talk to campaigns and say, look, this is how you need to talk to African-Americans. And we would all nod and take notes and try, and it never worked. And the reason is because I think African-Americans heard what we were saying perfectly. It was what we were saying that was the problem. Right. And we, the, the, our, the, the fundamental dynamic here is that there was this sort of joke that Ronald Reagan would tell that was also a policy statement. And, you know, I laughed like everybody. Uh, The most dangerous words in the English language are, I'm here from the federal government to help. And we would all chuckle, but it also sort of espoused a view that when it was smaller government, the government can. Now, how do you square that with appealing to a group of people who, the federal government is one of the key, if not the key uh, instruments in bettering their lives. And you can't, and we never came to grips with that. And to this day, we haven't come to grips with that uh, to to, to reconcile those two. Now, in in 99 and 2000 with Bush, there was an attempt to, with this concept of compassion and conservatism. And if you go back to, you know, his first piece of legislation was No Child Left Behind. And, you know, he signed it with Ted Kennedy over his right shoulder. I mean, today, that'd be submitted like a war crimes tribunal, you know, like, you know, which guy should be tried. But, you know, I think that was an acceptance and a recognition that there was this failure. Um, and it, it's only gotten worse. Um, and I think even Republicans of the best intentions never came to grips, have never come to grips with the failure of the policy. To appeal. Um, it's why African Americans who run as Republicans don't do particularly better with African Americans. Mm-hmm. And you got to assume that African Americans know how to talk to African Americans. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a language problem. It's a substance problem. Stuart, um,
0: the, the last question for you, uh, and we haven't even, I mean, we've only just scratched the surface uh, of your book, um, but let's project project out. Um, how worried are you about the election and um, what could happen on election day?
1: I'm the most unalarmist guy in the world because if you work in politics, you realize mostly it's pretty boring. It's just kind of blocking and tackling and executing. I think the next days between now and the election are the most dangerous periods in America since the Civil War. Donald Trump has always benefited from the inability to imagine Donald Trump. Um, And, you know, normal people, and most of us are normal, when someone's acting abnormally, we assume they will revert to normalcy. We have a whole language about that. He'll come to his senses. Uh, Trump's not a normal person, and he's always demanded normalcy from others for refusing to be normal, and it's been a great advantage that he's had. Trump tests people. He's tested the Republican Party and proven that they'll be weak. In Barr, he basically has his Roy Cohn. You know, Barr is functioning as a mob lawyer. Um, the scenario I use is, November 1st, uh, Trump's losing. There's reports of voter regularity in Dade County, They're all they are. So he calls up Chad Wolf and sends in those guys in camouflage, whoever the hell they are, uh, to seize the boxes in the Dade County courthouse. So who's going to stop them? The security guard there? I don't think so. Guys come in with automatic weapons. So the courts go crazy, of course. Within the hours, they order the boxes returned. But what if they're opened? You have a whole chain of custody question. What are you going to do? How are you going to have a f- vote without Florida? How are you going to have a Florida vote without dade County? So Trump will not lose an election that he has not done everything he can to delegitimize. And. Uh, if it's 1964, it won't happen, just because it won't be able to happen. But if it's 2000, God help us. I mean, if you said to Donald Trump, you can win, but you, this will be the last election in America, I think he would like look at you and go, I, I, I don't get it, what's the catch? What's, what, what, what? Yeah, okay, so what, what do I care? Um, rough on Ivanka, but you know, so what? Um, the degree to which he is a dangerous person, who is enabled by a weak party. I mean, in our system, parties should be circuit breakers. And the Republican Party has proved it won't pull the circuit breaker. Um, I think it's extraordinarily dangerous. Uh, And the best way to avoid it is to crush Donald Trump. Crush. And if I ran the Democratic Party now, I'm always surprised by this kind of inferiority complex I hear from the Democratic Party. They say this about us in the Lincoln Project. Oh, you guys are so much better. Not really. We're just different. We have different goals. You guys have won the popular vote every time since nineteen eighty-eight, two thousand four. If I ran the Democratic Party, I'd say, you know, we're going to crush Donald Trump. There are more of us than are them. We should walk with confidence here. This is our moment. We will seize this. It is our destiny to win this race. So go at this with a conviction that you're making history and changing history and saving America. And we will win. And I think that's how they ought to approach it.
0: Stuart Stevens, author of It Was All a Lie, which also happens to be your eighth book. You're also a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for listening to k Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.